Well, last week as we started Lent, we also started a new sermon series. Over the course of Lent, we are exploring the different streams or types of spirituality that we find in the life of Jesus and in the history of the church. Uh, Last week, we opened our series by uh, looking at the theme of holiness, and we discussed some of the common misconceptions about holiness and looked at some concrete ways that we can work towards being more holy in our own lives. This week, we turn to the charismatic stream. And we, where holiness centers on the power of God to be something, the, the charismatic stream really looks at the power of God to do something. Um, so those who are centered in the charismatic stream are kind of infused with and guided by the Holy Spirit in the work that they do in the world. They feel the immediacy of God's presence in their lives. They feel the immediacy of God surrounding them and empowering them. And they act on that power in their own lives. And this work of the Spirit in the lives of people can take many different forms. Um, In the Gospels, we find examples of the Holy Spirit driving Jesus out to places by himself so that he can spend time in prayer, um, including in last week's text. In the narrative of the temptation, Jesus not only relies on God for strength to hold firm in the face of the temptations, The text tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit as he left the Jordan and that he trusted in the Spirit as he went out into the wilderness to spend his time in preparation and fasting. If we look again to the saints of the church, we can look to the man who would become known as St. Francis of Assisi. He was a son of a wealthy landowner. Um, He kind of uh, wasted his time living it up, spending his father's money, until he had a vision of a cross that ordered him to rebuild his church. He heard the voice of God speaking to him from the cross to rebuild his church. And after that, after this vision, he went forth strengthened by the Spirit and this power that came over him, and he turned his back on his family's wealth, And he became the leader of the Franciscans who are known for um, not having money, for traveling the countryside, for preaching the word of God, and for helping people in need. Today we see uh, different Pentecostal churches and other charismatic traditions that focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people still today. And many of these movements focus on the gifts of the Spirit that we find in the writings of Paul. Paul gives us several lists of spiritual gifts in his different letters, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians. And while these lists are not all exactly the same, we do see that there are some similarities between all these gifts that Paul names. And they tend to fall into some distinct areas. We see gifts that are for leadership. We see ecstatic gifts, like speaking in tongues and prophecy. We see community building gifts like wisdom and healing. And when we turn to the text we have today, we see Jesus exercising several spiritual gifts all at the same time. He speaks prophetically in his interactions with the Pharisees, speaking out against the powers that be and calling Herod a devious fox. He also expresses his need to continue the work of exorcism, of casting out demons, and of healing as he travels around the countryside. And these are two gifts that are intimately mixed in the story of Jesus. 
He has to continue his ministry of traveling the countryside and teaching and preaching. One of the things this little snippet into the life of Jesus makes clear is that there is no single gift or type of gift that is necessarily more important than any other. Paul also makes this clear in 1 Corinthians And in fact, while we don't have time to read the entirety of the three chapters today in worship, I would invite you to look at chapters 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians to learn a little more about the spiritual gifts that Paul lays out and how those can have an impact on our lives. Just as our passage today from Luke shows us more than one gift at work in the life of Jesus, Paul speaks to the way that there are multiple gifts that are present in the life's of the members of the body of Christ that is the church. And in the chapters of first in these chapters of 1 Corinthians Paul starts out just listing out what these various gifts are and how we all have different gifts that we bring into this body, gifts that we have from the spirit that empowers us. And then he ends in chapter 14 with a discussion of how these various spiritual gifts are meant to build up the body of Christ that is the church. But it's kind of this middle chapter, chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, where we find the familiar words related to love that we so often hear at weddings, that is the key for Paul about what it is that we do with our spiritual gifts. You see, these words about love are not really about romantic love. They're instead related to the entire purpose of having these gifts in the life of the church. No matter what gifts a person may have, no matter what the Spirit has empowered them to do, if it is not done in love, it is not serving any purpose. Looking again at today's text in Luke, this is exactly what continues to drive Jesus in his ministry in the world. He could have fled from Herod, he could have run away, he could have tried to hide, or filled with his power from God. He could have simply made the problem go away. Instead, he continues to do the work of love, all but ignoring this threat on his life from Herod. This is the primary mark of the gifts of the Spirit, living a life lived in love for others. The Holy Spirit blows where she will, empowering people with various gifts But the purpose of these gifts is always to build up the church in love. The gifts themselves are not the focus of these gifts. Nor do any particular gifts mean that any particular person is more important than anybody else. All of the gifts are needed in order for us to build up the church. It takes all of us working together with each of our gifts to serve the church to grow the church and our community. And these gifts have to be centered in our love for others. One gifted from leadership should not be out looking just for themselves, but should be looking at the ways in which their leadership is for the good of the community. Those gifted with prophecy should not be seeking their own well-being alone, but the well-being of all in the community. Nor should a focus on the work of the Spirit, lead us to reject reason or planning. 
Someone thoroughly grounded in the work of the Holy Spirit in their life will feel the Spirit moving within them and guiding them even in their times of study and preparation as at any other time. It seems like often we kind of fall back on listening to the Holy Spirit as an excuse for not preparing. Part of the reason for this is that the work of the Holy Spirit can be a bit scary at times. The Spirit has a tendency to kind of jar us out of our complacency and to reject our urge to kind of put God in a box that we have designed. But God cannot be domesticated, and the Spirit shows us this over and over again. When the Spirit moves in our lives and in the lives of those around us, it can make us uncomfortable. Particularly when the ecstatic gifts come into play, such as speaking in tongues or the discernment of the spirits, or the gifts of prophecy. Sometimes the gifts of the spirit are expressed in bodily ways that our ordered minds just get a little bit uncomfortable with. But this is one of the strengths of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our communities. She helps us move in ways that we had not considered. Now normally by this point on a Sunday morning, I have already brought in some kind of movie to try and help us figure out the theme of what's going on here. Um, And I admit I struggled with this a little bit this week. At first I thought maybe I could talk about Star Wars, and I could talk about the Force, and how the Force kind of draws us all together, and it touches on all living things, and it empowers some to some things and some to others. And I was like, well, that, that works okay. And then I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I could like, look at the, uh, the Avengers movies and talk about the way that each of the Avengers kind of comes together with their own gift, but it takes all of them working together to kind of fix the problem and save the world or the universe or whatever the existential crisis is today, this week. But as I started discussing this theme of how the Holy Spirit moves in our lives and everything with my wife, April, she said what I really needed to use was the movie Chocolat. Now, this is a 20-year-old movie or so, 25 years, I don't know, something like that. It has a really great uh, cast of characters, Alfred Molina, Judy Dench, Johnny Depp. And I watched it once years ago. I remember watching it, but I really didn't remember it well enough to kind of see what what it was that April was saying. But as she refreshed my memory, I, I knew that it was a much better fit. You see, this movie is set in a French village in 1959, and the town mayor is this rather overbearing man. He's staunchly Catholic, and he is just... He's just so sure that he knows better than everyone else how things are supposed to be, how things are supposed to work. So much so that he, he, he takes it upon himself to rewrite the homilies of the priest in the local parish. And the film is set during Lent, and the whole town is observing the Lenten fast. No meat, no pastries, nothing pleasurable at all. Everyone goes to Mass, everyone observes the sacraments, and anyone who doesn't is considered an outcast an outsider. They don't really belong. During the Mass this one Sunday, the wind literally blows open the doors of the church. And along with the wind, a woman arrives into town with her daughter in tow. And she rents the local pastry shop in town that, you know, as she walks in, we can tell, has been abandoned for quite some time. And she begins to clean it up and to set up her own shop. But instead of a pastry shop, she turns it into a chocolate shop. Now, as you can think about this, opening a chocolate shop in this 
very Catholic town in the middle of the Lenten fast. Very interesting choice. But she doesn't let that deter her. And she has a knack for, for guessing each person's favorite chocolate. And over the course of the, the movie, she befriends a lot of the people who are kind of on the margins. Her landlady, who is a diabetic but refuses to live in a care home. A woman in an abusive marriage who feels powerless to leave because the sacrament of marriage tells her that she can't get out. Later in the movie, she welcomes a wandering group who travel in boats up and down the river, stopping in towns along the way to do little odd jobs here and there. And she welcomes them, even though the rest of the town begins to organize to keep them out based on their perceived immorality. She's the only one who wants to befriend them and reach out to them. And as the movie comes to an end, the coldness in the town, this completely domesticated idea of what it is that God is supposed to look like and what it is that righteousness is supposed to look like is totally upended by this woman who simply came to town and offered people kindness. She brought with her a simple refusal to act in any way other than love towards other people. Her only desire was to bring that small joy that people get from that little taste of chocolate. But it is her insistence on accepting not only the upstanding people of the town, the, the righteous people, but her consciously including the people who are on the margins. Her constant speaking out against the hypocrisy of the actions of those in power that leads to eventually a time of love and reconciliation in the life of that town, and a very fine Easter sermon directly from the priest without any input whatsoever from the mayor, which I'd like us to watch now. I'm not sure what the theme of my homily today ought to be. Do I want to speak of the miracle of our Lord's divine transformation? Not really, no. I don't want to talk about his divinity. I'd rather talk about his humanity. I mean, you know, how he lived his life here on earth. His kindness, his tolerance. Listen, here's what I think. I think we can't go around measuring our goodness by what we don't do by what we deny ourselves, what we resist, and who we exclude. I think we've got to measure goodness by what we embrace, what we create, and who we include. You see, in the end, this community becomes a place of love instead of judgment a place of doing good rather than avoiding bad. This is what sometimes scares us about the work of the Spirit in our lives. We become so certain that we are right, that our way of doing things is the only way or the best way or the right way to do things. We limit God to just our experience or our perception of who God is. And we forget that God is beyond definition 
beyond our control. This does not mean we do not strive to do the best that we can to seek an understanding of God, but we must also be open to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Do our actions lead us into acts of love? Do our actions support the life of the community? If not, what are the changes that the Spirit is calling us into? I encourage you as you go forth this week to listen to the places where the Spirit is calling you to do the work of love in the world. Find others that hold on to the Holy Spirit in their lives. Look to those who hold to the simplicity of loving God and loving others. Look for the Spirit nudging you to dance with joy before God. Listen for the Spirit encouraging you to reach out in love to hold others up. Feel the Spirit guiding your words and your actions. What might we become if we open ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst?